We often do this. We, we lump things together and give it a, a uniform identity, and it doesn't really represent the diversity that is out there in the world, whether it's amongst rocks or particular types of tree bark or people. You know, we, we, we lump people together as well, rather than picking them out and saying these are all individuals. Neil Benvy there, talking about his Meet Your Neighbours project, which studies nature's diversity. I'll introduce Neil in a minute, but first, welcome to the Viewfinders Photography Podcast, where we talk photography, but we go way beyond camera settings, delving into the thoughts of brilliant photographers from all around the world. I'm your host, Graham Dargie. I'm a professional photographer from Aberdeen in Scotland. Thanks for checking out this episode. I hope things are good where you are. Here, we've had a rare spell of sunshine, and after a winter that just went on and on and on, it's such a relief not to be cold, to be bunched up in layers of merino wool and fleece and it's just been so nice so i'm hoping that continues well forever i could handle that one thing i do love about the sunshine is it's really conducive for my new hobby roller skating now you might be wondering why a 42 year old man is taking up roller skating well i have a five-year-old daughter who took up roller skating and i thought if she learns to skate and i learn to skate then we can skate together i just thought that would be a brilliant thing for us to do So I'm giving it a go and I have to say I love it. Um, I haven't had a new hobby for a long time and with a five-year-old you can imagine there just hasn't been much time for one these last few years. So I'm practicing as much as I can. It's really, really tricky and my body is wondering what is happening to it. But uh, I'm getting better and I'm having fun and that's the main thing. If you want to follow my skating progress then you can find me on Instagram at Graham Dargy, where you can also see my photography which might to be fair be more interesting to you. If you don't want to follow my skating progress but you'd still like to connect, then follow at Viewfinders Podcast. I love connecting with listeners, so please drop me a line if you do find me on Instagram. You can also follow this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are found. And check out viewfinderslive.com to find previous episodes featuring amazing guests like Jim Richardson, Howard Schatz, Osborne Masharia, Valda Bailey, Brian Hodges, Kai Hornung, Audie Woolard, Trevor Cole, Paul Sanders, and many more amazing photographers. Okay, a final shout out for my next Viewfinders Live event coming up this Sunday, the 13th of June, 2021. Food Photography with Donna Krauss, sponsored by MPB. Donna Krauss is a Nikon ambassador and a Rotolite Master of Light and one of the most sought after food photographers in the UK. Donna's amazing, one of the smartest, most creative people I've met in photography and one of the best at what she does. Join us on Zoom to learn how Donna creates her amazing photographs from styling to camera settings, lighting and more. You can ask anything in the live Q&A and you could win a £50 MPB voucher in the exclusive prize draw. If you're into food photography, still life photography, lighting or if you just want to grow your photography knowledge and get an insight into the thoughts of one of the UK's finest photographers then come along on Sunday the 13th of June 2021 at 7.30pm. The event will be recorded exclusively for ticket holders, so if you can't make it, you don't have to miss out. Tickets cost just £12. You can get them at the Viewfinders website, viewfinderslive.com. Links in the show notes. I hope you can make it. It's going to be a great night. Thanks to MPB for sponsoring the podcast this season. If you've got something in your camera bag you're not using, then trade it in to MPB to get something you will use or just to get some money in your pocket. MPB makes selling your kit easy and anything you buy comes with a six month warranty. So go check out their website, follow them on Instagram. Again, links are in the show notes. Now onto this week's show. 
My guest is Neil Benvy, a photographer originally from the northeast of Scotland who's now based in Burgundy, France. Neil grew up on a berry farm and first got into photography to document the bird and plant life in his local area. After studying geography at university, his photography interests turned into a 30-year career as a photographer, writer and photography guide. Neil is probably best known for his photographs of flora and fauna, which he shoots using a field studio to create unique and beautiful images, which are reminiscent of the kind of illustrations you'd find in an old encyclopedia or field guide. Our conversation covers Neil's upbringing, his early awareness of environmentalism, his varied career, the rhythms of creativity, and much more. I'm sure you'll take something away from this. Here's my conversation with Neil Benvy. Hi, Neil. Welcome to the show. How's things? Good morning, Graham. Uh, not bad at all, thanks. It's a lovely day here in Burgundy. Nightingales are singing and there's a couple of hoopos calling in the background as well, so it's just delightful. Yeah, it looks like I'd rather be there than here in Aberdeen, but would you mind introducing yourself and just telling us a little bit about your photography? Yes, uh, well, I'm Neil Benvey, spelt Nile, but usually pronounced Neil, and I've worked as a photographer and writer and designer and guide for Gideon for 30 years now. I'm from the, the northeast of Scotland, from Angus, that's where I grew up, and I spent the first part of my working life there running our family's small berry farm until it was sold. I then headed off to university to study for a geography degree. But at the back of all that, over the years since probably I was about 10 or so, I had been really, really, really interested in birds and then plants. And this was an interest that was really fostered by my father, who was a very keen naturalist as well as a, a farmer. And around about 13 or so, uh, the photography came in. Because like so many people, I wanted to, to be able to draw and paint what I was seeing, but I was very poor at that. And I picked up a camera. And um, that was really my in to photography originally. It was the, the natural history first, rather than the, the photography. Uh, that was the, the main interest. But over the years, um, and as I learned about what other people were doing, um, and what was possible in Scotland even through the work of Laurie Campbell, I began to diversify the type of photography I was doing from purely recording species uh, to uh, environmental subjects to topics and increasingly in recent years photographing you could say ideas. So a lot of the pictures I, I make start off my head and then I make the picture. So you could say that rather than photographing what's in front of my eyes it's often what's what's in my mind is is a starting mm -hmm. off point for the pictures yeah i wanted to pick up on a few things that you said there well, and definitely the ideas but um let's go back to angus because yes. um that in in this part of the world it's in the northeast it's kind of like strawberry country isn't it yes that's right strawberries and raspberries yeah so what was it like growing up on that berry farm well i was a, a very privileged child i got to grow up on a farm and um, the farm was successful enough, certainly in the, the 50s and 60s, my dad bought it just after the, the war, that it allowed, even just off 80 acres at that time, uh, my parents to bring up a family of four children and for them to have space in their lives to dream and to imagine, and in my case, to get totally absorbed by the natural world, both in the farm and a bit further afield as well. But for me, uh, most of my formative experiences of wildlife were in my locale um, along the river South Esk in the Angus Glens at Montrose mm -hmm. Basin and that um, 
it, it guided not only the, the sorts of subjects I was interested in, but also an appreciation of the local, of what I can do on my own doorstep without having to travel mm-hmm. far. And that sort of stood me in quite good stead over the years, not least because it it forces some degree of creativity when you can't just mm-hmm. hop off to the, um, the the top honey spots all around the world to get your pictures. So when at, at 13, when you, you said you got into photography, what, what were you looking at through the camera then at, at those times? At the time, I wanted to record plants because I was a bit of a, an odd teenager. And uh, I was at that stage, as well as girls, of course, but I was really, really interested in plants. <laughs> and it was a, it's a sort of collecting instinct thing. So I would uh, tootle off up the Angus Glens onto these mountain tops and record rare alpine mm-hmm. plants. Um, spent ages along the coast, ferreting all the little coves to see what I could find. But along the way, I wanted to make a record of that plant. And to be honest, that's all they were record photographs. There was nothing mm-hmm. uh, arty or interpretive or uh, even particularly personal about the picture. They were just rather uh, bad record shots. And so at that age uh, and, and with that upbringing and being in the countryside as you were, and it's a beautiful part of the world, environment, agriculture obviously were, were always in your mind, maybe not consciously though, the way that they might be nowadays, what sort of level of awareness would you have about the importance of that sort of natural world around you? Does that make sense? Absolutely, yes. And the answer is quite clear. I was absolutely aware through through my dad. He was a very unusual mm-hmm. farmer insofar as he he greatly believed in this old principle of leaving the land in a better state than you acquire it. So he he planted a lot of trees in the farm. We had a disused railway cutting and an embankment uh, cutting across the farm. So they were all planted up with hardwoods. And this this ethos was was passed on to me. And of course, I I bought into it completely. But I would say that uh, a sort of greater appreciation or understanding maybe of how we treat the land in Scotland, um, how we've degraded it over a, a very long time, didn't really come about till my early 20s when I started reading a lot more on the subject and began to look at the landscape in a much more critical way. So whereas, for example, many people would look at the the hills of Deeside covered in heather, something very beautiful and expansive, instead I tended to look at it as a heavily degraded landscape without large predators, without the natural tree cover, and now mm-hmm. uh, a, monoc- uh, 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 a monoculture of heather for the benefits of of, uh, sporting shooting. So, yeah, um, things have changed. And the other big change, of course, was when I started to travel to other parts of Europe a little bit later in my career, particularly to the Baltic uh, states of Latvia and Estonia. And there I encountered uh, a diversity and an abundance of life that I wasn't used to seeing in Scotland. And these were not wilderness areas. These were cultural landscapes where people were farming, albeit very simple farming, uh, without anything in the way of pesticides or herbicides. But it highlighted to me just how impoverished the wildlife of Scotland had become, uh, largely through the actions of people. Um, I was struck too by the fact that Latvia had a population then, this is in the, the early 2000s, of round about thirty to 50,000 culling male corncrakes and at that time we were spending a huge amount of money in Scotland each year on 
conserving the 600 or so males, principally in the Outer Hebrides. So this this dissonance between um, what we spend and what we value here uh, compared to what is actually still extant in other parts of Europe began to ring pretty loudly in my head and really laid the ground for a lot of the writing I started doing at that stage. And so you went to study geography and uh, contemporary European studies. So what what did that set you up for career-wise? And then how did that kind of mingle with the photography interest that you had going on? I was, what, 25 or so, I think, when I went to university because our, our farm was sold after... Well, I, I ran it for seven years, then it was sold. Um, so... I think at that stage, I mean, I, I had grades from school that would have got me in, but I didn't do it then. I think at that stage, you're you're thinking, I need to get my degree. I'm going to go for something I'm interested in, and it's probably fairly safe. So I, I did my geography degree. Um, but I have to say that I, I rather regarded it as a job. I didn't get involved in student life because I was totally into my photography then. And I was really going in at 8.30, finishing at 5, and using the rest of my time for building my portfolio of pictures and running other projects as well. So what did it give Mm -hmm. me? Well, it it taught me how to write and how to analyse information and present it. So that was a a very, very useful thing. But um, I haven't really put much of the knowledge to direct use, except a couple of biogeography courses that I did. Nevertheless, it was a it was a good training for that, and as I say, I used it. I used that time to sort of dip my toe in the water to make contact with professional wildlife photographers, and just to get some sort of sense as to what it would take when I graduated to make the move into to being a full time wildlife photographer. After that, where did it go career wise and photography wise? And I'm I'm really interested in how the the environmental kind of eye that you have, the photography, and where you, when that became writing as well. So where did you go from, from there to here? Well, after I graduated, I, you know, I had this opportunity because I didn't have any children at that stage. I thought, this is the time. We just need to see if we can make this work. And, you know, it was, a, it was very, in many ways, it was very naive. I had a, a tiny portfolio of frankly not awfully great photography there were a few pictures i'd i'd had some uh winners in bbc wildlife photography for the year at that stage but the the number of pictures i had that i could go to market with was really really small but mm-hmm. on the other hand uh there wasn't much in the way of competition we had laurie mm-hmm. campbell who was the established and totally preeminent scottish wildlife photographer <clears throat> and i believe still is um but uh, apart from a couple of colleagues who were working at it part-time, I had a, a fairly uh, open run to try and get my work out there as well, which at that time looked pretty similar to Laurie's, I have to say. Um, but I was also writing as well. That was a, a big thing for me early on mm-hmm. because I realised that the marketability of my pictures was much greater if there was text that would go with them. And initially the, yeah. the writing was principally about about photography and the experience of being out with these wild creatures. But in time, it became a bit more thoughtful, maybe. It came more about environmental topics too. And I, I started to act uh, more like a photojournalist when I, when I was travelling, uh, searching for a story, making sure I got the elements to illustrate that, and then seeking uh, outlets for it when I came back home. I was going to pick up on the, on the writing there. What does the writing give to you? Because I was going to ask this, because for me... I 
well, I don't write really now. I used to write on the on the blog, you know, every week or whatever. And it was really helpful to me to order my thoughts about photography, to really put these different bubbles of ideas into a narrative that that really it helped me to make sense of what I was doing. And also in terms of uh, tuition and things like that, to, to really have a clear narrative about what I'm saying about photography to the people that I'm teaching. Um, I was wondering, the writing alongside the photography, is, does that help your thought process? Does it help you move on and develop your own ideas? Or, or where are you at with that? Absolutely. I mean, I think we should maybe um, div- divide the writing into, into two sections. There's the writing about photography and people's relationship with the land, which is one side. And then there's the more um, photojournalistic storytelling. Now, I'm not doing very much of that at the moment at all. Um, mm-hmm. Most of what I do in that respect, actually, is in support of our our main business, which is the photographic retreats. And you're wanting to, to essentially tell people, but also inspire them to, to come to these places by uh, drawing a drawing a picture as to what they're about. But in terms of the, uh, shall we say, the more technical and, hesitate to use the word, but but philosophical or or thoughts-based writing, uh, my experience Mm -hmm. is is exactly the same as yours, that sometimes I'll I'll sit down to write my column and the idea, there's a a germ of the idea there, and I know what this is going to be about, but it's actually once I get down to the hard graft of typing out the words that suddenly it starts to make more sense to me. And it's a, it's a very surprising process, maybe, for people who don't write. And I believe this is often the case for novelists as well. There's an, in, uh, an inclination to think that everything is, is preformed and it's just the matter of getting down and hammering the words out. Yeah. But actually, a lot of it comes out through the mental exercise of trying to frame these, uh, these thoughts and construct these sentences. And I think that's a, that's a lovely process. I found, too, that mm. when I'm, I'm teaching online, which I think many of us have ended up doing that a lot this past year, that my, my brain is almost working separately from what I'm saying, and I'm testing an idea and sometimes working out something as I'm actually talking. So this whole process that we, we've, been, or, um, we've been forced into this year with, with doing all these Zoom lessons, it's actually been really, really good <laughs> because I, I've, mm-hmm. I, I've, I've um, through this process of intensively engaging with people, pretty much every week I'll have four or five lessons. I've done a whole bunch of webinars as well. And being made to stand up and coherently explain yourself and your ideas yeah. is a really, a really good exercise, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. But I've heard that about authors as well, uh, novelists, where they they just I've heard some people say they just start and they just yes. they, they they don't really know. But they know the first yeah. paragraph maybe, um, and I've heard, heard other people say, you know, the characters just kind of wrote themselves. The dialogue they just gave it to me, you know, which I can't. I know I can't write a novel like that, but I can understand that from from an ideas perspective and developing ideas like I knew when I started the podcast there was more I just knew that I had to get moving with it and the, and the more would kind of download w- once you're familiar with that um, rhythm of creativity I think it, it brings you a lot of freedom to actually start something knowing that you don't know necessarily what it's going to be yeah, yeah. but knowing that you can at least start rather than because otherwise if you think it has to be the whole the whole picture then it you can be kind of imprisoned by that and actually not get going at all so i think i think one of the things that absolutely crushes creativity 
is um, uh, preconceptions, fixed ideas about how things should be or how they should be photographed. Whenever I hear people using the word should in the context of creativity, my toes curl unless it's you should ignore all the rules and you should be yourself. But otherwise, should is not a good <laughs> word in this realm. Okay, let's get into photography then. Can we talk yes. about your work with the field studio? Um, can you, for people who, who are listening who may not, can't see what we're talking about, can you describe what that work is and what was the origin of that idea with the field studio? Well, field studio photographs are quite distinctive and recognisable insofar as they've got a pure white backlit background and the front of the subject is lit by a very soft diffused flash. So all the light for these comes from from flash, but the look to it is very mellow and, and rather beautiful because the backlighting mm-hmm. helps to show the translucence of the subject. Now, lots of people had done... Uh, backgrounds, simple backgrounds before a piece of white card. But what was making the difference with um, how we developed the field studio was that light was coming from behind as well as the front, and that's what gives this lovely glow and brilliance to the shots. And I, mm-hmm. I'd tried doing white background pictures in the late 1990s on film, but as a parsimonious Scot, I just could not uh, thaw the tremendous waste of film that was involved to to get results where everything was out to white in the background. Now, why does that actually matter? Well, um, the, the the work has evolved into these white background portraits being simply the elements that go into making much more complex and interesting composites. And if the background isn't pure white, then it just doesn't work. There's an awful lot more work yeah. to do it. Now, I'm certainly not the first person to have done this stuff. But I think pretty soon after I, I, I cracked the technique, I started to publish it, and I found that a lot of people were actually interested in this as well. And uh, that's when I then to find, found out about our antecedents, like David Litchwager and Susan Middleton. And even before them, um, Jim Balog had done some work with rare species in uh, in the studio on white backgrounds, albeit not backlit. And going further back than that, into the 1920s, uh, the German photographer Karl Blosfeld had created uh, several books of beautiful, very, very simple images which just celebrated the natural forms of ferns and seed heads and things. And um, so this is a, a continuity of an idea that's been going for a long time. And I'd like to think that through the work I've done and all my friends and colleagues on the Meet Your Neighbours project, which is a sort of a a worldwide uh, collaboration of people all shooting to exactly the same protocol, um, that we've sort of further advanced the the look of the pictures and uh, people's enjoyment of them as well, because they're they're certainly being seen much much further afield. And if I may be facetious for a second, um, they're also an awful lot cheaper to print than normal photographs because most of it's white. (laughs) Well, that's the Scotsman in you, definitely coming out there. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, well, it seems like it's really resonated with people. I mean, I can understand why it looks beautiful. But it's not unlike any kind of photography that most of us have seen before. Although, as you've alluded to, it seems like it's a bit of a time-honoured kind of thing. A bit like I was talking with Howard Schatz about the the motion studies as well. What do you think it is about that that really lands with people? Well, 
I want to answer this in the context of, of the evolution of it and what, what I'm doing now. And I think initially people were really struck by the simplicity and the clarity of these pictures in particular, because what we were doing was taking our subjects completely out of context. They weren't like normal nature pictures where at least part of the subjects um, obscured because it's a small bug amongst some grass. You never see them properly. Yeah. Um, but also seeing what people thought were very familiar species like minnows and other animals and newts is another good example, which people think, oh, they're a bit dull, a bit brown. And then you put them isolated in a white tank and people say, yeah. wow, look at the colours, look at the patterns in these animals. So it was that mm -hmm. degree of surprise initially. And quite often I, I'd be out, um, I did a couple of jobs for Wild Wonders of Europe in Spain and, and France and Austria as well. And I'd often be working in a, a national park, have all the gear set up photographing grasshoppers or something. And it's, it's a bit of a circus, actually, all the tripods and lights. So people would come over and yeah, see what imagine. I was doing and um, say, what are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm photographing this grasshopper. Oh, don't like grasshoppers. Um, well, have a look mm. at the back of my camera. And you show them the, the picture initially and say, oh, that's interesting. Then you zoom in close on it, say, wow, that's awesome. So the, this mm -hmm. was a real element of surprise because they hadn't seen subjects like this before. So for the first, um, what three or four years I was perfectly happy just shooting these these uh, one-off these uh, single subject images of the animal or the plant against the white background and I then found that just a little bit all a bit samey and I'd, I'd done a lot of species by that time because it's a very productive way to work um, and then I thought well actually these are going to be quite easy to create composite images with because they're all white backgrounds you put them on a white page and they, they all blend seamlessly and then even after that for two or three years I thought no I just I'm just getting tired of this I need to move on to other things which I, I did mm -hmm. in my creative work um, but when was it 2017 I began to look again because I'd learned some new techniques along the way in Photoshop and I thought you know I'm absolutely crazy I carry these big alinchrom uh, flash packs and heads with me and the whole lot weighs about 35 kilos surely I can do this with with lighter weight strobes as I did originally mm -hmm. and surely I don't need these softbox I can just use pieces of uh, acrylic for the background and flyweight which is essentially a plastic envelope stiffener as my front diffuser and lo and behold I rediscovered the original look of these pictures the softness of the light but a certain degree of directionality as well so it wasn't just all a bit a bit flat which I've been getting with the soft boxes and by goodness I was totally into it again then my productivity shot up but that combined with an evolution of the work where I began to do a whole lot of new things with it I initially was creating these composites but thinking you know I think that white background is just a bit stark and I began to mm -hmm. substitute it with a, a pale cream one. And that got a lot of, uh, lot of appreciation and that stuff was published. And then I, I started, I'm always keen to merge various strands that I, I explore in my work. Um, and one of these is something called colour transects, where we, um, we pick out the colours either of the landscape or of a subject and present these as little coloured tiles as part of the overall work yeah. with the original photograph. So I, I borrowed from that 
and we started creating um, almost like watercolour paint swatches down the side of the image too. Um, and these have a really have a very strong look, I think, and other people seem to as well, of something which has been painted. Um, and then um, I've been doing much more in a way of vintage-type illustrations recently. So these would be the sorts of things you might see from a field guide a long time ago, where all the elements are... None of them are joined to the edge of the frame, which is normally was the restriction in the past when I, I made composites. We needed a, a single, simple meeting point between the plant, the stem, and the edge of the frame. But I thought, well, that's very restrictive, so I now do what I would call free-floating uh, composites, where each element can just be laid out on the page as suits the composition. The edges faded out. And then um, a treatment, a colour grading put on that um, really reinforces the feeling for the viewer when they look at it that it's it's something old. And the next thing I, I'm just at the very, very beginning of exploring now is what I call free-flowing. So rather than free-floating, these are free-flowing ones. And here we have all the elements are... Um, they're effectively joined up. Um, if you look at any bit of fabric, for example, um, printed, you'll see that quite often there isn't a faded out end of a stem or um, the bird's perch. They're all linked. A little element is hidden in behind whatever's beneath it and it creates a free-flowing work. So I'm looking to, to do some work along these lines as well. But what's the overall point of doing this? Well, it's because I want people to look at species and individuals, because you're really presenting these animals and plants as individuals, not as members of a community or just a species, but that little character, that newt that is looking at you in a very wistful way, or even that um, caddisfly larvae, it's got a very evil look as it, 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 it peers at you through the tank. Uh, it's all about personalising nature, um, not just saying this is all lumped together as as one, and so that's that's part of the idea behind these these panels to um, to individualise my subjects, but also um, given that it's so so hard nowadays to get people to look at your photographs for more than a couple of seconds because there's such a, a tsunami of amazing imagery out there, um, yeah. it's just your palate is dulled by it and this is another way I use to try and hold the viewer's interest for a little bit longer and it's a theme that keeps recurring in my work um, creating pieces which are comprised of multiple elements because that almost inevitably makes the viewer look at each one individually and keeps them with your work for a little bit longer yeah I think it's really effective in that regard of getting people to stay with the image and like you said, the the overall uh, kind of effect of the composites that you've been describing, it's got that kind of old-fashioned field guide or encyclopedia or a science book kind of feel, which is so um, it's so charming, you know. I was wondering, well, two things. It goes. I think it's really interesting that this goes right back to what you spoke about when you were thirteen, recording the species out there with your yes. camera, you know. And it's to me, there's, there's, it's directly tied to that origin of your own photography. But I was wondering, on the composites, is there a relationship between the different elements there? Like, what's the relationship? The one I really, that I really, I'm looking at at the moment on my screen, 
and usually we come to maybe come to this later in the podcast, but um, this is one that I really like because it's got the blue tit on it. So there's the blue tit, and then there's these other kind of um, plants and, and branches and so on. I don't have the language to describe them, but what's the relationship between those different elements uh, in the picture? They're part of a community, but you can actually see all the, the individual members of that community in one image. They're not mm-hmm. hiding each other. And when I say community, I mean a biological association of, of species. Okay. Um, so in the, the that blue tit one, for example, these are all trees um, in typical blue tit habitat. Now, I, pay, I okay. play uh, pretty fast and loose with scale and with time in these pictures mm-hmm. because there's no danger that when somebody looks at them, they think, wow, wasn't that an amazingly lucky capture that guy had? They're obviously illustrations, so there's no... There's no risk of deceiving deceiving your viewer. So with that in mind, I then uh, compose the, 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 the composite so that the elements are balanced for maximum aesthetic effect. And the fact that that bit of sycamore is uh, completely out of scale with that bit of willow or whatever it is doesn't really matter because you're, my primary goal here is to engage the viewer of the interest, to get them to look closely at things mm-hmm. and if I presented that uh, beetle say with, in the same scale as a dormouse then people wouldn't be seeing the beetle so I'm quite happy about that but I do um, I do uh, I, I do observe the, the, the community accurately but sometimes the time is um, is flexible as well so I might have a plant that actually flowers at the end of February in the same composite as um a plant that doesn't produce its fruit until the autumn, and you see mm-hmm. you see both elements together, um, and mm-hmm. this is uh, I think I think this comes from a quite good long tradition of of illustration, where it's illustration isn't necessarily about a completely accurate record of how things are. Uh, in an illustration, you can communicate things to the viewer which are not possible in in a photograph, and that's why so many yeah. field guides still use. Uh, illustrators rather than than photographers or photographs. I wanted to uh, also segue to your panel's work at the chocolate bars, I think you call them. So um, it's gotten back to another way of uh, getting people to to hold their attention on the work. But that was a conscious response to this idea of getting people to to stay with your image for more than a few seconds, um, I think, from from what I've read. Um, so presumably that's you start to shoot with that idea in mind so I really like the ones where you have the same leaf but you have many different uh, versions of that leaf uh, or, or there's a few other examples along those lines but um, yeah what can you talk about uh, that idea of shooting those chocolate bars or panels um, I shot my first chocolate bar as I subsequently called them and let me tell you uh, first why they're called chocolate bars uh, my idea is that if you offer a hungry person a single chunk of chocolate it's quite nice but it's not really very satisfying and it's a lot like all those lovely little details of rocks and lichens and mosses and all these things that we, we love doing but actually uh, you're not going to keep your viewer with you for more than two seconds with these but mm-hmm. once you start putting them together en masse then visually I think it's much more arresting and what I was going to say was the first one I did was in Norway in 2007. I was just touring around in my camper van then. 
And I was staying be uh, beside this little boggy area and it had lots and lots of birch trees in it. And I was really struck by how varied the bark was because we you maybe think of birch as being grey with these black lentils across it and that's it. But actually there's a huge variety you can find there. And we're going to think, well, if I want to photograph birch bark, what should I photograph? Uh, is it this one or that one? I thought, this is ridiculous. It's the, it's the variety that is actually what represents it. And I then began to think along the lines of, well, we often do this. We, we lump things together and give it a, a uniform identity. And that doesn't really represent the diversity that is out there in the world, whether it's amongst uh, rocks or particular types of, of tree bark or people. You know, we, we, we lump people together as well, rather than picking yeah. them out and saying these are all individuals. So I then thought, yeah. well, this is actually quite a big theme. And it began to appear in quite a lot of the work I was doing where I wanted to actually stop people from being lazy and, and lumping everything together and instead represent the diversity that is present. So it could be in types of, of uh, coloured granite or, as you mentioned, these leaves. I, for that project, I, I photographed, I think it was 300 oak leaves in the autumn, all individually on my uh, field studio set, and then laid them out using, at that time, InDesign, uh, all scaled to be the same size, but each one as quite different from the other. A bit of a, an invitation for the viewer to, to explore and see the variety amongst these leaves. I did the same thing for uh, beech leaves too, about another 300 beech leaves. And for me, the most interesting project, I think, was when I photographed 500 pebbles, all individually, one at a time, from the beach at Ochmithy, which is just outside Arbroath on the east coast of Scotland. And there, it's, a, it's one of these pebble beaches that you get in various places in the northeast where it's backed by um, old red sandstone cliffs that have layers of what they call pudding stone so when these cliffs were formed we're talking more than 400 million years ago um, the sandstone into which the pebbles um, became embedded into this matrix uh, at that time Scotland or what was become Scotland was somewhere near where the Sahara is nowadays but these pebbles that were getting embedded in the sand at that stage were really really old because they were smooth they'd been worked by water for eons before then then they got embedded in the sandstone built into cliffs drifted north through continental drift up to where Scotland now is and all the time these being eroded and eroded and eventually they came out on the beach and they look nothing when they're dry, but then the water comes in and these beautiful colours and patterns that have endured for an unimaginably long time are still there to be seen. And I thought, talking about a grey beach is so wrong here. We need to highlight how beautiful and distinctive all these are. And that's what I did with, um, with that particular project, each one shot individually. Mm. I I love pebbles and um, uh, we live just right on the coast and um, every time I go to the the beach whether we go to Stonehaven or just to the Cove Bay here um, I'm always really fascinated by the pebbles and like the more you look at them the more you see you know yeah. um, but one one thing that I, that fascinates me is just imagine those pebbles being dragged up and down that beach for years and years and years by the tide. And when I pick one up to throw it, I wonder how many other dads have done that with their daughters over the <laughs> hundreds of years. Yeah, yeah. But I never realised that 
that backstory that that you just yeah. told me about where the pebbles came from. But what one the most interesting thing I thought that you said was that Scotland used to be where the Sahara is, and I kind of <laughs> wish they would move it back there. To be honest, but anyway, yeah, um, yeah. I, I'm picking up a thread here uh, on your work. You're, you're really an observer. You're really the colours of things seem to be interesting to you, and I like what I'm, I think is really interesting when you take these elements, whether it's on the um, on the panels that we were talking about earlier, where it's the the, the field studio stuff or, or more like the flat lay kind of um, leaves. You spoke about the, the, the colors on, I don't know, I think it was a newt that you'd said when you take that out of the context of the, of the environment that it lives in. You see things differently and I suppose with the, with the fish or something, it's supposed to blend into the background. You take it out, you're going to see what it's really about, I suppose. You must be curious about representing the diversity of of nature, which you've already said you are, but it's really, really coming out in everything that you're saying. So, well, could I make a, a sort of broader observation about things? Um, I started off, as we've sort of alluded to, as a as a traditional wildlife photographer. It was plants, and then birds is what I really, really wanted to photograph. And doing it in these early days, um, as I said, there weren't there weren't very many other people doing it in Scotland. I, I'm a kind of, I'm a bit of a contrarian, I think, not in an unpleasant way, but I, I don't like going with the crowd. And it was quite a niche thing to be doing to be a wildlife photographer. And then once it started being mainstream, and of course there were lots of people then um, better resourced, uh, better equipment, and probably better photographers too, were producing work that made mine no longer relevant. So my natural inclination then was to and of course digital uh, revolution made this possible, was to start exploring the ideas in my head and how I could how mm-hmm. I could photograph these, rather than just trying to do more amazing, uh, impactful wildlife photographs. That There was no point in me doing that anymore at that stage. So from a, a traditional starting off point, I simply evolved. But more importantly, and I think this is, this is a quite... Um, uh, useful for your your listeners to to understand as well is I began to find context for the pictures of what I was making. It was no longer a bunch of of random photographs of nice subjects and good locations. It was actually much more about things so rather than photographs being of particular subjects, these mm-hmm. uh, pictures fitted into a, a broader context. Of, and this obviously was happening when I was doing photojournalistic stories in the Baltic states. But more generally, um, they were about... Um, they, were, they, were, they were pictures that were, were serving a bigger story. And that's what helped to join them together. And I think when photographers mm-hmm. can find this, they not only have a better idea of what they want to photograph next, but also... Their, their body of work becomes more coherent as well because it's about yeah. something rather than just a lot of, r- lot of random illustrations. Okay, that brings us to uh, the gear round. So uh, the gear round, uh, this season sponsored by MPB. And so when you go into your camera bag, Neil, what's the first thing that comes out, sort of camera lens combination? Um, a lot of the time at the moment, I'm using exactly the same thing because I'm doing mostly field studio work right now. So it's mm-hmm. a Nikon D810 with a Sigma mm-hmm. um, 150 macro lens. Now, I used to use a, okay. a very, very sharp micro Nikkor 200, but 
actually the autofocus was not very effective, which is really helpful if you're photographing uh, little creatures moving about quickly. So I, I bought yeah. that Sigma lens about 10 years ago, and it's been, been great. But beyond that, I've, uh, I'm not a great gear hand, actually. Um, mm. I, in the, the what, 16 years since I converted to digital, and I was one of the latest of my colleagues, I've owned just four cameras. And I'm, the one I have at the moment, the 810, I've been using for the last five years. Why? Because it does everything I need it to do. Um, but I have a, a, a 20, what, 21 year old 500 f4, which is an amazingly sharp lens and still works beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, 50, 85, 7200, 1635. And uh, and the 150, and that's that's it. For me, what's much more interesting is mm-hmm. is the the lighting gear, because that's what helps to separate mm-hmm. out your pictures from what other people are doing. And um, I've got a a, a Linkrum uh, ELB 400s, well, two packs and a bunch of heads for that. Uh, variety of soft boxes, but for my my field studio work, that is done just with two fairly inexpensive cactus flash guns uh, which have built-in radio trigger and um, mm-hmm. a piece of Perspex that goes behind the subject and a piece of this envelope stiffener that is used for the front diffuser which is it's just perfect. Okay. It's, the gear is, is quite heavy to carry about. The Field Studio kit is about 25 kilos but I can carry that all in my purse and be, be relatively mobile mm-hmm. with that. I love that answer really. I mean you've got you could be dragging out the Ellen Chrome stuff but Really, you know, you can. The field craft knows you can do it with the smaller flashes and yeah, you can see from the, the size of stuff that you're shooting. It actually, yeah, yeah. I think I'm a big speedlight proponent, and I have an Ellen Chrome kit yeah, as well. But yeah, I always, yeah. always end up going back to the speedlights because so often on location, you don't need more power; you actually need less power. Yes, um, yeah. and so. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm getting you. I really like the way that you've described that. So I'll put a link in the show notes to everything, uh, all the gear that you've mentioned, right. uh, and also a link where you can go to MPB and get a quote to trade in your unwanted photography gear. So MPB buys, sells, and trades thousands of items each week. Everything comes with a six-month warranty. And thanks again to MPB for sponsoring the gear round. Um, so, Neil, it brings us on to a round which I call Double Exposure. I've already asked you about the, my favourite picture of yours, which has got the blue tit and it's the panel with the composite, and I love that. Is there a particular shot or experience you've had in your photography journey that's just unforgettable and stands out? I think uh, there's two in particular I'm thinking of because the circumstances around them were were really <laughs> quite challenging. Um I made my first trip to Norway um, in my camper van at the time in 1998. I'd seen a BBC programme about sea eagles uh, and the talk about uh, the, the reintroduction in Scotland. And as part of the sequence, there was a, a, a chap sitting in a wooden cabin somewhere, I thought in Norway, looking out, and in the distance he was watching seagulls. I thought, flippin' heck, this is interesting. This might be just what, uh, the lead that I need. So it happened that the uh, the writer for the programme, Kenny Taylor, was um, uh, somebody I knew quite well, and I got in touch with them. And he revealed that the, the chap who featured in the film was uh, his uh, former uh, PhD student, um, and he'd moved to Norway. So I got in touch with this chap, who, as it turned out, was the same age as me, had grown up only 20 miles away, and we were both these nerdy bird types who'd never met each other. It was such a such a waste. Anyway, so I bowled off my first trip to Norway, and um, 
we he put me in touch with the chap who'd had that house where I'd saw him sitting, and I spent uh, a week in a hole in the ground in really pretty horrible weather, uh, waiting for <laughs> sea eagles to turn up at this this bait site, and it's only in the very last afternoon. Bear in mind, this is still in film days, where um, mm-hmm. it was wet, it was gloomy. I think I was down to about a fifteenth of a second f four. Um, that a couple of eagles and a golden eagle as well turned up at the at the bait site, and I was I was a bit disappointed. Really, it was one of these trips was a v- real feeling that uh, you've almost achieved, but you haven't quite, and you know it in yourself that the pictures mm-hmm. are. They're yeah. better than what was available, but they're not really going to cut it. Um, so I've, I organised to go back the next winter, and that was in a different prospect altogether. Cold, cold weather, lots of snow, slightly different site, still with the same chap putting out the bait. And I I cleaned up with the, the, the seagulls that mm-hmm. year, and it was a time where there were still... Not a lot of, uh, not not a lot of of good sea eagle work had been done by British photographers, so it found its it found its way into print. Um, but on that same trip, um, Duncan and I went over to Dovrefjell, uh, which you might know is quite well known for its population of muskox. These um, lived in Norway. Uh, well, in in post glacial times, they disappeared for a while, then they were reintroduced. Um, well, getting on for a century ago, not quite as long. Anyway, um, these are, are strange animals, if, if you don't know them, sort of like a bit between a cross between maybe a, a sheep and a goat, but, but quite big animals too. And they, they typically live in very windswept places where in winter the, the, sn- the, the wind blows the snow away so they can get down to, to graze. So from the road, we'd, we'd actually spotted them about, what, um, maybe two and a half kilometres away and the only way to get there was in cross-country skis and I had not actually cross-country skied before but I was determined we were going to get there so on the skis on the big backpack the 500 and all the rest of it and started making our way across now if you've ever tried to cross-country ski and you're not used to it it's an incredibly painful experience and I kept falling over so many times um, and, but eventually we got to the bottom of the slope where the, the muskox were. Oh, I'm so glad to get these skis off. Um, but I also wasn't wearing very good clothing for it. Used to working in Scotland, you don't need all this fancy technical gear. So I, I was basically doing everything wrong. All these things I'd moaned about, people coming up from the south and going in the Scottish mountains in winter, ill-prepared. Well, I was recapitulating that in Norway. So we climbed up to where the uh, lefter skis, climbed up to where the muskox were, and I um, got the camera set up, tripod, exposure, and the animals all sat down to start chewing the cud. And that doesn't really make for very interesting pictures. And I was pretty hungry as well because we hadn't eaten much before we left. I had been sweating profusely with all this falling down, and... I began to get a bit cold, but I was determined I was going to get these pictures. And after about three quarters of an hour, the muskox, one by one, started standing up. And as I say, this is a very exposed spot that they, they like to, to stand in. And, um, well, I was really, really cold. And after about ten minutes and just a couple of rolls of film, um, I said to Duncan, I can't operate the camera anymore. My hands are just, they're just completely numb. Um, 
we do need to go down, but I just want to have a wee. I just need a little lie down first. I'm really, really tired. And he said, give me your bag now. You're getting hypothermia. I'm not having you yeah. go to sleep here. So he basically mm-hmm. frog marched me down the hill, carried my bag. I was in a really pretty bad way. On the plus side, I was actually really happy with the pictures. Um, they were fresh pictures that had not been seen. Vansel Mounier hadn't done his favorite, his famous work in Doverfiel at that stage. And um, they they found their way into print quite a lot. But I was I was quite proud of them. And I was also kind of glad I didn't let myself down in stuffing up the exposure or something um, after all the effort had gone into getting it. But there was a, yeah. there was a lesson learned there too. That brings us on to the quick fire round, which I call motor drive, you know, because it's <laughs> quick fire. And so if you're ready, we will proceed. Wide angle or telephoto? Telephoto. Coffee or tea? Tea. Okay, and this is the most important question. Uh, expensive lens cloth or the corner of your shirt? Actually, handkerchief. I have a. I keep a clean handkerchief in my left pocket at all times, so that's my preferred preferred choice there. Don't Just don't mix it up with the dirty one when you're wiping your lens. <laughs> this is my optical one, the other's a nasal one. Yeah. <laughs> okay, um, okay. Uh, music round uh, to bring you right back to your roots. Rod Stewart or Proclaimers? Uh, if I had to choose Rod Stewart... Uh, okay, so what was the last great book, movie, series, or album you experienced? Possibly uh, Occupied on Netflix, which is about um, the occupation of Norway uh, by the Russians under EU encouragement, because Norway wants to stop producing oil. Okay, right, it's on Netflix. I'll put a link in the show notes. And um, name a photographer we should all know. Paul Hermanson. Paul Hermanson. Okay, what kind of work is that? Well, I'm mentioning Paul because he is incredibly diverse in his output, imaginative, and also, to go back to a word you used about Jim Richardson's work, uh, playful as well. Um, Mm -hmm. He uh, he started off as a traditional nature photographer, and um, he has evolved tremendously and one of the things I love about his work is a lot of it is so left field that it makes my slightly more eccentric ideas look quite mainstream so he's a he's a great outmarker of imagination and uh, uh, I, I've worked with him and he'll we, when we travel together he had a, a crate in the back of our van where all his pack cameras are piled into and he had everything he was shooting color neg on six by nine uh, panoramas shooting video digital stills uh, he didn't have any film cam uh, any um, 35 mil slide at that time but whenever he saw something he would just reach for the for the appropriate tool for the job mm. and make images and he's one of these photographers who just shoot all the time as they're going along and I think mm. Paul why are you doing this this is a waste of time and uh, I edit in the evening he'd quietly sit there editing and every so often call me across and I'd look at that thing oh my goodness that is so not obvious and it's so brilliant mm. <laughs> so he's a very inspiring uh, in, in his methodology but how he sees things as well mm-hmm. okay we'll check it out link in the yeah. show notes and when do you feel at peace with the universe usually when I'm sitting with my wife Charlotte outside here in Burgundy after dinner having a long in-depth chat about whatever we want to talk about with uh, the cows mooing in the background, perhaps, but more often mm-hmm. a nightingale singing, uh, crickets calling and a turtle dove uh, trilling away in the tree above us. Well, you've painted a great picture there. It sounds really, really nice. 
Thanks, Neil. I, we, I wish we could have spoken for longer because I think we could have gone into more detail about more things. And I, I really wanted to uh, give you a chance to mention your uh, food photography workshops. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that before we sign off? Yes, thank you, Graham. Well, um, I've worked as a, as a guide pretty much since the start of my career in addition to everything else. And Charlotte and I uh, did a lot of trips around about 50 actually 50 tours for an english company mostly in iceland but in other parts of europe as well and in 2018 we decided that we had a very particular offer um, in terms of the hospitality as well as the tuition and knowledge we could share um, so we founded food and photography retreats limited and essentially we offer um house parties, in a good sense, uh, for photographers who want to be in a, a lovely location to learn particular photographic skills, to enjoy good conversation with other photographers and eat lovely food. Because Charlotte is a, a, a chef par excellence. She was actually through to um, the last, um, well, to the last 70 of MasterChef a few years ago. That aside, um, these are, are quite different from sort of boot camp photo workshops where uh, it's very much about the the getting together of people with like minds but also enjoying the experience of being in a lovely place as well and we've like all these businesses been uh, unable to operate since a year past february but we fully intend to to resume uh, probably in september here in france um, we also have a couple of trips in scotland after that but we'll be publishing a, a full program for 2022 quite soon as well but uh, we, in future, will be doing a lot more work here in France, partly because we're getting to know our local area very, very intensely. Mm-hmm. And um, that's great to be able to take people down a little lane that nobody would ever go to normally and say, well, actually, this is yeah. a great view across the, the Bocage landscape here. And I know that we need, if we need to be there round about, um, you know, 20 to 7 on an August evening, then we'll be there. So that's, that's essentially what yeah. we do. That, that's our main part of our business these days. Great. Well, I hope you can get back to work like everybody at the moment is hoping to be able to get back into it. So I hope that does uh, pick up again for you. Thanks a lot, Neil. Really, really appreciate your insight on this. And um, we'll speak again soon. Take care. Thank you, Graham. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Follow Neil on Instagram and check out his website to find out more about his online tuition and his in-person workshops. Links and links to everything else we spoke about are in the show notes. If you like this episode, then check out my conversations with Guy Edwards, who also shoots a lot of different subjects, and Brian Hodges, who's also working with a field studio. Thanks for your time. Enjoy your photography. I'll see you out there.